There are many different paths you can take, but there's only one road to Atlanta. The high drive deep out to left field. He clubbed it. Brady twisting and turning, looking up and giving up. It's a home run for Danby Swanson. Flair out towards shallow right. That's big trouble. Albies going back. He dives and he makes the catch. What a play, Ozzy Albies. Swanson is headed for three. He'll try for an inside the parker. Relay throw comes toward the plate. He'll score standing, and it's his second inside the park home run of the season. This is your weekly podcast dedicated to the Atlanta Braves farm system. Follow the show on Twitter at Road, the number two, Atlanta. Now, hit the road with your hosts, Eric Cole, Gaurav Vidak, and Garrett Spain. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Road to Atlanta, a podcast devoted solely to the Braves farm system and Braves prospects. I am one of your hosts, Eric Cole. You may recognize me from my work over on TalkingChop.com, where I've been the deputy site manager for the past two-ish plus seasons. Uh, I guess we can kind of count the 2020s as a season, even though nothing, no baseball has actually happened. And I've also been the minor league editor for the past six seasons or so. It is draft day. The Braves have made their first round selection, and we wanted to get a quick reaction show. This isn't going to be a full-length show like we would normally do, uh, so this is going to be kind of a quick reaction to the first round pick and kind of what we think is happening uh, and what we think of the pick. Joining me is our, pers- our personal draft guru, Matt Powers. You can follow him on Twitter at MattPowers31. Matt, how are you, man? I'm doing good. I mean, we finally have baseball back in some form. I mean, they're not playing games, but we're watching baseball on TV right now, which is more than we've been able to say in, what, three months at this point? So that's positive. Yeah, it's been a long dry spell for actual positive baseball news, Braves news, or really just any baseball news, if you are if you kind of think about it that way. Uh, we still don't know if there's actually going to be a 2020 season, and if there is, what that's going to, what form that's going to take. And it was kind of nice tonight, today, to really kind of be able to unplug from all that and unplug from the world and kind of focus on the things that we like talking about. The draft is a big part of what we do at Talking Chop. Uh, Matt, it's, it's the Matt's favorite part of the year. Uh, even though there was only four or five rounds in this draft, uh, unlike the 40 that there usually are, Matt still had a top, you know, 250 or something like that prospects that he was working through and, and actually had like real up to date and, you know, detailed information on, you know, this is it kind was of what 213 this year. Uh, actually, oh, okay. But... I'm sorry. 213. I guarantee you I can find 37 names that aren't on your list that you actually have stored away information about. Uh, guarantee. Yeah, I, only went, Guar- I only went shorter because the draft was shorter. It would have been longer if the draft was longer. <laughs> It's it's a lot of fun to kind of think about what the Braves are going to be doing and obviously adding minor leaguers to a system where Matt and I cover the minor leagues. That's always really exciting for us. But this year was pretty weird. Um, for those who aren't aware, again, normally this is a, the baseball draft is a 40-round draft. It's a three-day, you know, the first couple rounds are the day to day one. Rounds three through ten are on day two. And then 11 through 40 is a rapid-fire slog of names uh, that are basically like – Recited like from a computer generated voice all day on that day three. Um, but that's like where you see a lot of these organizations filling out their minor league rosters. This year is different. There are only five rounds because of the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, teams really wanted to kind of t- tone down their costs in terms of minor leaguers 
and contracts and basically anywhere they can tone down costs is what's happening right now is what they're trying to do. And the draft is where they decide to make for those savings. Now, I openly question whether or not this is a good use if this is a good use of savings, because I think that the the bang for your buck in terms of your dollars in the draft is the best that you're going to find. Would you agree with that? Oh, easily. I mean, look at look around the league, look at teams' actual payrolls, and actually look at every dollar being spent on players. Look at all the players that are being paid not to actually suit up for these teams. Like guys like Chris Johnson, at Nick Swisher at the end of their Braves tenure, uh, Matt Kemp, Carl Crawford. There's a lot more money being spent on players like that right now than what would have been spent by these teams on the draft. So it, it's kind of hard to buy into this is a good use of saving money when you're more interested in paying off guys who aren't even going to provide value to your big league club than to spend a little bit of money on some kids who might someday be major contributors to your big league club. Yeah, and there's a there's a lot to unpack with kind of what what decisions were made regarding minor leaguers and what decisions were made regarding the draft, but none of that really matters because ultimately this is the format that we have, and it's five rounds. The slot values are very similar to what we know, but because there's only five rounds and you don't have that day three to kind of you know spend some of those under slot savings, we didn't really know strategically what was going to happen in terms of how teams were going to be going about this draft, were there going to be a lot more underslot deals, where everything was, were there going to be picks that were kind of out of left field, did, were, did we think there were going to be teams that are punting on picks, and while the one that we thought might do it didn't does not seem to have done it, one other team might have in the first round, but we're not, no one's 100% certain, uh, which is part of the fun of the draft, uh, that would be the Red Sox and taking uh, Nick York. It seems like that that Arizona commitment was always going to be hard to sign him out of, and he was drafted at suspiciously weird spot of the draft. So there are folks that were openly wondering on the MLB Network uh, broadcast for sure as to whether or not this was a a pick that he was going to be actually signable. They Um, did. uh, Red Sox have commented to their own media that they intend to sign him. That's wild to me. He must want to be a Red Sox fan. Well, regardless, there's a lot of weird things that happened in the top ten. We saw uh, Kierstad go number two, which was another underslot signing, which gave the Orioles all sorts of money to be able to spend later on, which I think impacted some things, including what was going on with the Braves um, later on in the draft. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we kind of get into it. But there was definitely some teams in the top 10 that saved some money with some underslot signings. And we, and we saw some guys drafted in some weird spots, even though once we got to around pick 12 or 13, all the right names were off the list, if that makes any sense. Um, but that led us to the Braves. We're down at 25. A lot of weird things were happening in the teens. Um, the guy that was being mocked to the Braves the most, and Bryce Jarvis, he ended up being picked earlier, um, and he was going to be kind of he was kind of the consensus college arm that the Braves seemed to like, and was also a potential underslot option for them, so that they could do some more options, more things in rounds three through five, since they do not have a second round pick, and maybe they would try to float one of those guys who would normally been a second round pick and get them to the third round pick and kind of pay them, pay them a little bit more. But that is not what happened. That we were, again, we, we had a lot of names floated towards us, to us over the last, uh, I would say the last 72 hours, there are a lot of names that are kind of being actively, 
actively floated as realistic options for the Braves at 25. And, you know, they range from high school arms to some, you know, a high school bat falling or under, under slot high school options, under slot college options. At number 25, the Braves picked Jared Schuster out of Wake Forest. Now, before we kind of get into what we think was the reasoning behind this pick, Matt, I, I know that you have a, you're pretty familiar with Schuster. Walk our listeners through kind of what he is about as a pitcher, what you like about him, what you're not a big, as big a fan of, and before we kind of get into the strategic elements of this pick. All right, so I won't talk about my opinion on the pick so much as what he is. So he's a guy from Massachusetts, so obviously cold-weather state. Got down to um, Wake Forest and really struggled as a freshman. Really struggled. I mean, he was hit pretty hard. So he goes from there to a second-tier summer league, not the Cape Cod League, the NECBL, which is in that grouping of second-tier summer leagues. It's not a bad league, but he had a pretty good year. So he comes back to Wake Forest last year, and he struggles yet again because he's not really throwing that hard. He's throwing low to mid-90s, sometimes in the upper 80s, and wasn't really anything special with command issues and not much velocity. So at this point, he's not even on a radar for this draft. Last summer, he goes out to the Cape, and I forget how many starts he made off the top of my head, but it wasn't that many, a small handful, and he dominated. And let me quickly just pull up his numbers, because I know I just wrote them in the article. I added them in a little after it actually published. Um what was it? Seven starts, 141 ERA, 0.78 whip with a 35 to 5 strikeout to walk ratio in 32 innings. So that's, those are great numbers. Those are dominating numbers to begin with, but then you have to factor in he did that against some of the best college competition in the country, not just regular college lineups. The stuff picked up. He was sitting in, mid-90s, he was touching as high as the mid to upper 90s. I think 97 was the high on him on his fastball. So to pick up about five to six miles an hour on his velocity like that, that's a pretty big jump. And on top of that, the command improved. So he didn't just improve the stuff, he improved the command. And then he comes back to Wake Forest in the fall, and that's when I started to I started to hear his name a little bit in the Cape because he broke out, but he started to really get a little buzz about him back in uh, the fall, in fall ball, because everything that we saw in the Cape actually continued with him, unlike what it did the year before in the NECBL. So after that is when scouts really started to take notice of him, and he just continue that on to this year and what were his stats quickly uh four games started obviously just 26.1 innings before the season got called but a 376 era 095 whip 43 strikeouts to just four walks i mean ridiculous strikeout number strikeout walk ratio right there one and a half strikeouts per inning or so right there so, I mean, there's a lot to like, and this guy has an interesting combination of stuff. He doesn't really have a plus, a true plus fastball. Uh, I mean, he is a lefty, obviously, so the, the fastball grades a little higher. It's more of an above average fastball, but he does have a changeup that, that gives him a plus, a true plus pitch. 
uh, he has a slider, which is, should be about an average slider. And the command that we've seen with him, at least dating back to just what we saw in the Cape, it should be about average, maybe, maybe above average overall. I mean, the strikeout to walk ratios ever since the Cape, um, what were five walks and 32 innings and four walks in 26 innings. So that's in total nine walks in about 60 innings. So not bad numbers. Um, I mean, he, he's probably more of a middle rotation guy overall upside wise. If he is able to continue now, obviously what we saw out of him has not been sustained over any length of time because seven starts on the Cape is not a full season of a workload, and we didn't really get to see him extend that over any length of time this spring before the season got called off. So I think the big question with him is, can this guy do this for a length of time, or was this just something that's going to come and go for him, that once he starts throwing 100, 150, 170 innings that the stuff is going to back up. I mean, he's not the biggest guy in the world, at least body-wise. He's 6'3", 210. I think he can maybe add a little bit more muscle to him, maybe 5 to 10 pounds at most. But he's probably not got a ton of projection left on him. I think it's more about improving the muscle to just expand on his durability. Overall, I mean, that's the kind of guy that you're getting a middle-of-the-rotation guy who, uh, if he doesn't pitch at that level, is probably more of a reliever. But if he can be a reliever with that stuff, you could possibly be looking at a setup type of guy from the left side. So I, I, I disagree a little bit with him, not not because, like, but there's no big quibbles. You're, you're, you're right in that, you know, he throws 97, but it's not the it's not the total life of the of the pitch that kind of makes it good in my mind um which is like if you're just kind of looking at the trajectory of his fastball it wasn't it doesn't necessarily project as something that's super that's had a, a ton of run on it even though I do like the arm side run that he gets on against the right-handers to be fair from the limited footage I've I've watched of him I do like that what's interesting about with him is that his his delivery is all in a fit is inefficient and kind of wonky, but it, to the point where it's super deceptive. And I think that pitchers have, that hitters have a lot of trouble seeing that hit, that pitch coming out of his hand, regardless of what it is. And that works really well with a guy, particularly one that has a good changeup. Now, I'm a little bit, maybe a little bit less sold on the, on the breaking ball. And I think that seems to be what the consensus is, is that the, the breaking ball doesn't seem to be something that does much for him right now. I don't know if a fastball changeup reliever is going to is going is to get the job done. I think the Braves see him as a starter, and again, kind of that middle rotation guy. Maybe you clean up his mechanics a little bit, and you kind of get him to get to work on either on working on a different breaking ball or trying to you know work on some different grips. These are all things that are possible because you're you're right in that he just doesn't have a ton of experience, and we don't know for sure if he's going to be able to you know, handle a starter's workload. But there are a lot of guys in this draft who no one was sure if they were going to be able to handle a workload, whether they're going to stay healthy or, you know, the transitions from, you know, relieving to starting. And there's a lot of guys like that in this draft. But, and, and 
in our fairness to our listeners, Matt was not a huge fan of this pick, partially because we felt like there were some other options that we liked at, at, at this pick for a similar strategy. But I do want to go over, before we kind of get into the guys that we really liked in that spot, other than Schuster, uh, I don't mind this pick. I don't. And the reason is, is that I feel like the Braves had a couple of, like, a couple plans in place. One is that one of the prep arms to fall, and the one that they liked and could also, might, maybe willing to go over slot or spend a lot of money on was Nick Bitsko. Uh, and Matt, Matt was pretty clear with me, you know, during the whole time. That's what it sounded like. It sounded like the Braves really liked Bitsko, and that they, if he fell to him, that they might be able to pull the trigger on him in terms of his overall talent, maybe spend a little bit more. But the, the Rays picked him literally one pick before the Braves picked. So once that happened, right? Go ahead. Matt? Uh, yeah, I was, I, I mean, heading into the draft, I felt pretty confident that if he was able to get there, he was going to be a Brave. Then Baltimore comes up and they threw that curveball taking Kerstad there. And Kerstad's obviously going to be an underslot guy. So I'm starting to worry a little bit. But I started to get a better feeling that he's coming to Atlanta and he's going to be the, our entire draft this year because if you draft Bitsko and sign him to what he's going to demand when he, you know that Baltimore definitely was in on him and Baltimore had more money than anyone else and just took a big underslot deal at number two overall that they can offer him whatever he wants. So you, you were going to have to give up the rest of your draft, but I was okay with that. I had him as a top 10 talent in this entire draft. I mean, he's that special of an arm. And I really do believe that had Tampa not jumped in there and stolen him out one pick early, he was all but done, set to be a brave. But obviously that did not work out. Yep. So we think, and there's this a little bit of hypotheticals here, we think that that was the like plan A, was that they had a few high school guys that if they dropped in their laps, they were willing to pull the trigger on, and like that was the, we're going to be there with the talent one. They were going to yeah. spend their money. I think but, Bitsko was the number one player on the entire board outside of some of those truly elite guys in the top ten that never had any chance at falling. I think Bitsko, way ahead of the draft, was number one on the board in terms of players that had any realistic chance of falling. But that didn't happen. And so what we think in that case is that the Braves' primary, I guess, I wouldn't call it a backup plan. This is just kind of, you know, option A is a high school player falls. If this doesn't happen, then they're, they were going to take a college arm that they liked. Uh, and again, these are, we kind of get into some weird things as to whether or not like who's like model and analytics friendly uh, in terms of arms here. And, you know, Bryce Jarvis was the name that the, was mocked to the Braves the most. He was the guy that, you know, had kind of some analytics going for him. He looked like one of the better pitchers in all of college baseball before everything shut down this year. Um, you know, not exciting stuff and kind of, you know, probably has a little bit of a higher ceiling than Schuster and a little bit less risk too. Uh, but a, a similar sort of guy in that he's a relatively unexciting guy in terms of stuff. But he knows how to pitch. He does have some things going for him. They're, they're, they're different things, mind you. Um, and he has a, some track record of performance. And he, more importantly, he was willing to sign under slot. And that seems to be what happened here with Schuster. Now, what we don't know, and we're going to kind of speculate, Matt and I are probably going to speculate about this towards the end of the podcast, uh, is how much money he's going to be under slot and what that enables them to do with rounds three through five. But before we get there, um, with this pick, 
at 25, there were a lot of interesting names. And actually, now that I think about it, I need to actually check one name. Uh, and I'm going to throw it to you before I kind of talk about that a little bit. What do we, what were the names that you were thinking at 25 once, now once Bitsko got called, who did you think was going to be the most likely options and who were you really wanting? So I really thought that the guy that was going to be in play was going to be player X, a player who's still on the board. Guy that I know the Braves liked was going to be the most likely pick. An underslot deal. A guy who could obviously still be in play later, but that was one of the guys. I thought that Cole Wilcox was going to be a guy that was going to be in play even more than Wilcox. I thought uh, Jared Kelly was going to be a guy that was going to be in play. I thought that uh, Lang could be in play, a beater. Uh, Slade Chaconi could be in play. Uh, any of those guys. I mean, it, it was all pitchers, but there were a lot of names in play, a lot of pitchers. Some of them, I think, would have signed under slot. Some of them obviously would have been more under slot than others, but um, I, that's kind of where I have a little bit of a hard time with this pick because I uh, was trying to say before, I don't mind the Schuster pick, but it, it's hard when you take him as a pitcher over all these other pitchers. So you're directly comparing him. It's going to really all come down to that bonus and what we're able to get from there to give up a guy like a Schuster to a guy like a Kelly slash Wilcox. So I, I think that's really going to be what tells the story of this draft because, I mean, you remember how I felt about last year and how negative I was driving home from the draft on day one when the Braves drafted two players that were not on my preference list. And then they went strong on day two and just loaded up on day three. So maybe they do something like that. Obviously, in a much shorter format tomorrow, but uh, hopefully that's still in play. Yeah, so here's the interesting about some of the so so Chaconi and Lang both got picked up in the comp rounds um, by teams that had had already previously saved money. So one can assume that they're spending some at, at least in Lang's case, who's a who's a prep arm for those who aren't aware that you know they had to spend that San Diego had to spend a little bit of money to be able to lock up Lang there. I am fascinated by the fact that Jared Kelly and Cole Wilcox are still on the board, period. Because those were guys like, I I, I, I mean, Cole Wilcox was a, a first-round arm when he came out of high school, and one that I liked a lot. That he is not being picked up is borderline weird to me. Uh, same thing with Jared Kelly. Now, it seem, we might be getting to the point with Kelly now that it's going to be hard to sign him because I think that what his ex- expectations were, you know, based on where he was ranked, et cetera, et cetera, and how he was wanting to get paid versus what people may be willing to pay him right now are going to be very different. Let, let me see where – I actually want to look really quick to see where – because Baltimore picked up Jordan Westberg, Westberg in the Comp A rounds, which I don't think he's going to require, like, an overslot bonus or anything in that spot. So it's possible that some of the money that, that Baltimore saved or, you know, some of these other teams elsewhere have saved that they're going to go for a guy like a Jared Kelly and maybe there's already a deal in place. But it seems like what the Braves have done is to set themselves up for those round, this, this, these rounds three through five. And that is, that fascinates me because it's, you know, it's not, it's one thing where you're trying to like float a guy out of the bottom of the first round and get him to your pick in the second round. 
but in a world in this world where we have such limited weird information, I don't know how you can realistically float a guy float guys that you like to your third, fourth, and fifth round picks from a second round that you just it's so hard to find as established. Now maybe you're just being reactive. Maybe you're just saying, okay, we, we have our board, let's look at what happened in the first round. Okay, so these are the guys that we would theoretically pick in the second round, let's go talk to them, and let's try to figure out if we can lock up a deal for an overslot deal to maybe make it to where other teams won't pick them. The problem with this strategy for the Braves in this draft is that they've won the lowest bonus pools in the entire draft, and even with this underslot deal, it might be difficult to float the guys that they really want down to their pick in the third round. Because the the obvious names are going to have a lot of people checking in, and there's some teams with some money right now. And the, and the Braves just don't have that kind of money. Even if they, you know, save, you know, even if it only costs 500000 to sign Schuster, it's going to be still be difficult to get, like, really high-end talents to them at the third, the third, fourth, and fifth rounds. So we're not going to dwell too much on this topic because we're, we're going to do a, definitely I'll do a full draft recap once we get a good sense of everything that happened in it after tomorrow. So you will be hearing from Matt and I again. But just as a preview for tomorrow, Matt, we know this is an underslot deal. Who are you looking for the Braves to hopefully add next tomorrow? So um, let's take a look at the article that I actually wrote today because I actually talked about one of the names and he may, the name that I was actually hoping as the player that I wanted to get as an overslot is probably going to be a little too expensive to actually get there. Uh, Cade Horton, the Oklahoma high school pitcher slash shortstop who's a legitimate enough prospect at both pitcher and shortstop that you could legitimately draft him at either one of those positions. But he's also a significant football recruit, and the Oklahoma high school recruit is part of the Oklahoma football recruiting class. So I don't think you're going to save enough money with Schuster because I don't think he's going to be cheap enough to allow that to happen. So um, the other names that I had in there of prep players would be the player I want most for 97 would have been Markevian Hence, the Arkansas right-handed pitcher. Uh, Harold Cole is the player that I said player I hope falls, the uh, Georgia high school shortstop out of the Georgia Premier Academy. Uh, another one of the players that I had and two more players I like, actually both of them, uh, Owen Casey, the Canadian outfielder who's got some Jason Hayward traits to him and Kevin Abel, the right-handed pitcher out of Oregon State. Now he is not really not Mick's brother. Um, he is a guy that last year at the start of the year looked like a potential top 10 pick for this year, then tore his elbow, missed the rest of last year very early in the season and didn't pitch this year and wasn't going to pitch this year because he was left off of their roster which meant that he was not going to be eligible to play for the rest of the year. So they obviously did not believe in his ability to make a return this year. So uh, those would be some of the names that I'd most be focusing on, as well as some of the other overslot candidates that I list. Um, another prep arm in Hunter Barnhart, uh, Kobe Mayo, the power-hitting third baseman out of a Florida high school, is another guy that I would be liking uh I mean, those are some of the names that I'd really like to see. Yeah, and there's a lot, of, and there, there's a lot of real talent still left on the board. And the one thing that's really nice about this draft is that even if you see a guy that's ranked, 
you know, 60th or 70th, and that's who the, the Braves end up trying to float down to their third round pick. This draft is so deep, particularly with arms. And the more I look at the the prep class of arms as well as the college prep, I'm coming around to the idea of like how good this draft class is. Not because, again, there's not like 40 first round picks of arms, but there's a lot, a lot of really quality arms. There's a lot of really projectable ones. Uh, hence is one in particular that Matt's been really excited about. They're talking about like super big on projectability. And if the Braves could get him in the third round, I'd be all for it. Because the one thing that the Braves need to get from this draft are some arms to fill their 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 lower minors. Because in addition to all the releases that just happened, which were again were kind of normal spring training and like early season releases to kind of pare down their rosters so they could get guys you know from the draft onto the rosters. But that you know all these releases and the realignment that's happening in the minor leagues, they just don't have very many arms of note in the lower minors. And so I'm not necessarily against the idea of getting some more arms that you can put down there. And then kind of seeing what kind of hay you can make with the undrafted free agent market. Um, I'm a little bit skeptical as to how much you can, how many bats and how many interesting players you can get for, for the $20,000 that's allowed to you for these undrafted free agents. But for a team that doesn't have any, you know, international free agent money to speak of for a while and has been kind of restricted in that regard, I do hope and expect that the Braves are going to try to make some moves there. And once we get to the end of the draft, I'm certain that Matt's going to kind of break down some of the best options for, you know, the undrafted guys that would be great free agent pickups, assuming that they would sign, um, you know, and kind of go and going from there. But we're going to take this one step at a time. And for tonight, Jared Schuster this is the newest first round pick for the Atlanta Braves. Uh, we're excited to kind of get to know him and kind of see how he develops and kind of see how the strategy develops. Uh, Matt, is there anything else you want to share before we let the folks go? Uh, we were going to talk about how much we think he goes under slot. I let's so okay. Well, let's just that's not that, let's let's do that before we go. Um, so the slot value for for that spot is two point seven four million. What is your guess for how much he signs for? My guess one point five. I think I I can't see him signing for less because he he would have gone high enough. I think that uh, maybe maybe he signs a little bit more, maybe one point seven five, but I think one point five is the bare minimum for him. I I think the range you're in is right. I think it's about a million under slot would be my guess, uh, and I, that's where and honestly in that range I feel okay about going a million under slot in this draft, especially that's like a quarter of your bonus pool that you can put towards elsewhere in the draft. I'm okay with it. I hope that more comes of this draft as a result of it and that they find some really high-end, like, high upside guys. A lot of those guys that we liked from day two and day three last year, you know, similar types of guys. Um, but they only have three more picks, so we'll see if that actually happens. But I think you're right. Like, my, my initial thought was 1.5. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there was, you know, if it was a hay, a, a hair lower or a hair higher. Um, and for a guy, a guy so, who has some real talent, huh? Go ahead. So, uh, pick 97, the slot value is essentially 600k. It's $599,100. So, let's say we're saving a million. So, let's say we have 1.6 million to play with with the next pick. Plus, we could go or, under elsewhere and save a little bit more, but, uh, 1.6. Or, or you could spread it around for the next three picks. Like, you don't have to spend it all on the next pick. You know, like, I, I think it's more likely that they kind of go for a second bigger pick. You know what I mean? I don't think that they necessarily spread it out like they're just moving up, basically moving up a few spots in each draft in each draft slot, and instead try to get like a, a, like a real impact count on the next pick. But we'll see. Uh, I, I am curious, and 
you know, this, this stretch was fascinating for us to cover. Um, and we're still working through it. But the first, if the first round was any indication, we're in for a kind of a wild draft on day two. And I expect some kind of weird things to happen and some guys that we thought, you know, were going to be, you know, heading off to be pros, you know, like they might be heading to junior college because they didn't get their demands met or, you know, a lot of stuff like that. Um, so Matt, if you, unless you don't have anything else, are you good? No, this was the craziest draft I can ever remember watching. I mean, just unpredictable from the second pick on. Yeah, it was wild. Uh, we had a lot of fun. Uh, it is going to continue to be a lot of fun. Make sure you're looking over on Talking Shop, especially read this article that Matt wrote. It's actually really good with a lot of interesting notes about players that he likes. Uh, the, his 2020 MLB draft preview, it's like scenarios for, for the Braves in this draft. It's definitely worth a read, uh, especially when you're going into day two and trying to figure out exactly what is going on with the, with the draft and who we like and you know who you should be keeping an ear out for, uh, whether it be picked by the Braves or picked by other teams so that you can figure out who who Matt is mad at and sending angry emails to for stealing his favorite players. Uh, you make sure you follow the, the uh, us on the podcast at Road the Number Two Atlanta on Twitter. And if you want to find listen to all these episodes, in addition to leading, listening to all the Talking Chop episodes, you are very fortunate because they are all on the same stream of for podcasts, whether it be iTunes, whether it be Google Play, whether it be any of those. If you just search for Talking Chop. And you find the Talking Chop stream. Not only will you get this podcast whenever it does air, but it also you'll also get the Talking Chop uh, Talking Chop podcast every time that it airs as well. When and Brad does a great job hosting that, and you'll hear my voice on that periodically as well. Thank you all so much for the support, and until next time, we'll see you on the road.